You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. The origins of patriarchy are not just in the past, they're right now, they're happening in the US around abortion rights, in Poland around abortion rights, in Afghanistan and Iran. This isn't patriarchy resurrected, this is patriarchy reinvented for the 21st century. Hello. I just wanted to extend my respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples um, of this land that was never ceded. And hopefully there will be a voice to Parliament soon and then a treaty. We are here to uh, have a conversation with uh, an award-winning science journalist and author. She has worked as a reporter for numerous media outlets, including the BBC, The Guardian, New Scientist and National Geographic. In 2020, she was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers by Prospect Magazine. (laughs) And in 2018, she was voted one of the most respected journalists in the UK. She's the author of Superior, The Return of Race Science, which was published in 2019 to widespread critical acclaim, and Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, which has been translated into 14 languages. Both are on university reading lists across the world. Her latest book, The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule, explores the roots of gendered oppression and how patriarchal systems become embedded in societies and spread across the globe. And as Leah mentioned, I'm Karen Pickering, and I'm so honoured and thrilled to introduce to you Angela Saini. And to get to talk about her incredible book tonight, I keep holding it upside down. It's okay. That's fine. It's fine either way. Um, The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule. Um, I found such an emotional and intellectual roller coaster, I have to say. Um, I watch a lot of murder shows. um, And I'm I'm making, I'm getting somewhere with this. And I thought more than once that The Patriarchs felt like a mystery thriller. Oh, good. Because I'm a Columbo fan. Right. So I was, shoot- I was shooting for that. And so, yeah. like Columbo, we already <laughs> yeah. knew who I did knew, it. I already knew the outcome. It, it was, was just, how did you get there? The men Proof have hope. come to rule. <laughs> um, and it just had all these kind of red herrings and, you know, these theories that seemed so solid and watertight and then they would just disappear in front of my eyes and I just I kind of um I was surprised because before I read it I felt like I knew who done it <laughs> um and you know having been in this field for a long time and I felt like I had a pretty good idea how men came to power but I was wrong I was wrong and I gotta say I found that very hard <laughs> Um, it was thrilling and exciting, um, but also really confronting at times. And I felt kind of um, protective of, or, or it was kind of irrationally defensive of older schools of thought that are now being revised with new information. And it's, you know, it's a really um, 
really provocative but ultimately, you know, inspiring book. So we will have a short time at the end for questions um, from the audience. And, uh, but I'm going to ask some now. <laughs> um, and I wanted to start with a line from your introduction that really gave me chills. After centuries of living in the societies we have made, we give what we see a single label, patriarchy. From here it appears almost conspiratorial, as though it was cleverly planned out from the start, when in truth it has always been a slow grift. So sorry for that big spoiler for the people who haven't <laughs> read the book. Um, you explain over the course of the book that we're not actually dealing with patriarchy, we're dealing with patriarchies. Um, so, did you know that before you started writing the book or did you discover that along the way? No, I discovered everything as I was writing it. So, the reader is learning with me and it changed completely the way I think about power in the process um, because we use this phrase patriarchy. It's become a little unfashionable in academic circles. So, feminist academics around the late 80s, 90s became a bit fed up with the idea of, or the idea of the word patriarchy because it feels so monolithic. It's so big and abstract and it removes us, our everyday lives, from this idea. And you become quite fatalistic then. You know, the, I, you, you almost feel as though however much you try to chip away at the patriarchy, there'll always be a bit left at the end, that there's always some kind of cabal out there and you'll never be able to stop them completely. And it's not actually like that. Um, you know, we imagine, we have all these ideas, these theories about how patriarchy originated, but it was just one, and still is, this long, slow grift continually reinventing itself, adapting itself to the environment that it's in, and it's doing that even now. The origins of patriarchy are not just in the past, they're right now, they're happening in the US around abortion rights, in Poland around abortion rights, in Afghanistan and Iran. This isn't patriarchy resurrected, this is patriarchy reinvented for the 21st century. Which is chilling. It I mean, is it's, chilling. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like capitalism in that sense that it, you know, almost contains within it, we, we like to think it contains within it the seeds of its own destruction, but it also <laughs> contains within it the seeds of its own reinvention. Yeah. And like capitalism, yeah. you know, it seems like you say, no matter how much we, we fight it, it, mm. it kind of shapeshifts into something else or yeah. adapts or maladapts into, mm. you know, even more resilient structures. Yeah. So you do a lot of myth-busting in this book. I don't know if that's a... It's probably not a technical scientific that's term. Okay. <laughs> but, um, and in all your books, really, they're kind of like lining up all of these truth that we, we mm. think we know and then you just kind of blow them away <laughs> over the course of the book. Um, so the book includes a lot of, um, I guess, lies that we've been told or that maybe weren't even consciously told as lies mm. and they became stories that we told ourselves mm. Um, specifically about matriarchies mm -hmm. in history. So can you just tell us a bit about that, about the yeah. what did you find when you went looking for these 
these mythical matriarchies? What what did you discover? Well, I think um, many people assume, or everyday people assume, that patriarchy is universal, that everywhere around the world is untouched by it. But that's um, that's not true. Anthropologists have documented at least 160 matrilineal communities around the world. So these are societies in which, I mean, if you were to define patriarchy, break down the word, it means rule of the father. These are societies in which there is no rule of the father. The father is not the head of the household. Um, usually authority is shared between men and women, depending on the circumstances, and often in which uh, women have quite a lot of agency and authority, you know, everything is recognized through mothers rather than through fathers. Um, and, you know, for a long time, even when I would speak to kind of prominent feminists about this, because they're known, it's not like we don't know they, they exist, we've known for a really long time, it would almost be as though, no, they don't really matter. They're kind of small societies, they're not relevant to, you know, what we're doing here. What we're dealing with is the real world. They almost belong to something else, like the past or an imaginary space. And actually, I think they're everything. You know, that's why I start the book with this, because they are a reminder, number one, that we can't be fatalistic about this. It's not inevitable. How can patriarchy be inevitable if there's so many modern-day societies that don't follow these rules? And secondly, they're a promise that we can do things differently, that we can organize ourselves in different ways. Um, so I only have one illustration in the book, and it's a map of modern-day matrilineal societies. And you can see, right across the Americas, an entire matrilineal belt across Africa, right across Asia. And I profile a few of these. Um, and none of them have particularly anything in common. And that's not because researchers haven't tried. They've tried to look for why do these societies exist, trying really hard to find some common thread as though they're a puzzle to be solved. And what never dawns on them is that maybe they are not the puzzle. The bigger puzzle is, why do we have patriarchy and why is it so widespread? This system, which is so skewed, that makes so many of us feel so uncomfortable living under it, we're always straining against it. How did this weird thing come to happen? The matrilineal societies are just, you know, how... Um, just a manifestation of the huge amount of social variation that existed among humans in the past, which we have lost. Patriarchy is the oddity here. That's a real puzzle. Yeah, you actually say at one point about the theorists using this term, the matrilineal puzzle, <laughs> and, and the historians and anthropologists and so on saying, like, but why would the men have gone along yep. with this insane... <laughs> matrilineal nonsense you know why would men take care of children that were mm. not theirs yeah um and you read it and you're like what you know it's hard it's much harder to imagine women asking that those questions yeah why would you take care yeah. of someone who wasn't your own child mm. or certain cultures would find you know that view bizarre yeah. um that you wouldn't take care of anyone and um, also it implies that uh we just you know, women just rolled over and accepted patriarchy because that is somehow something we would naturally do. This is, you know, something that we would accept that men wouldn't, which is so patronising and offensive. And it implies that there is this biological imperative behind 
male domination, which genuinely, as hard as this is for some people to believe, there really isn't. Mm. Men don't rule because they are on average slightly bigger, on average slightly stronger than, than women. As hard as that is to believe, there is a quote in the book from Star Trek. That was like really accepted <laughs> knowledge for a long time, though, wasn't and it? You know, still, within feminist circles as well, that yeah. there were these kind of explanations for how patriarchy. Mm. And I came out of that academic tradition, you know, that patriarchy had um, had come about because of, um, you know, livestock and you know the world historical defeat of the female yeah. sex and this idea that. Um, men being physically stronger mm. gave them this sort of evolutionary edge was really... Um, and it's still there. It's still in the for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. But what did you find instead? Well, I was just about to say, so there's, I'm a big science fiction geek and there's a, there's a quote that I have from Star Trek. So there's this, uh, there's this episode of Star Trek, I can't remember the series, in which the crew land on a planet where women are in charge. This is a matriarchal planet. And almost as if to say, how could there be a planet as weird as this? This mystery is solved by the fact that the women happen to be a bit bigger than the men on this planet. So, you know, and that tells you everything that you need to know about how we imagine patriarchy in this world works. Um, but actually, you know, the fact that there are societies that don't follow these rules, number one, that's already evidence against it. But even if we look at other primates, I'm going to get a bit sciencey here, but um, the two closest primate relatives to us, bonobos and chimpanzees. For a long time, animal researchers just assumed that male domination was a rule in the animal kingdom, that anything else was kind of aberrant or something strange was going on. Um, and chimpanzees were used as a model for how we might have been in our evolutionary history. So chimps are male-dominated. They're very vicious towards other males when they're trying to move up the hierarchy. Um, they can be quite vicious towards females as well. Um, but the other species equally close to us, genetically, bonobos, are matriarchal. And we only learnt this relatively recently within the last few decades. But even when we learnt it, primatologists were so reluctant to accept that might be a possibility. There's a, I interviewed Franz de Waal, who's a very famous primatologist, and he recounted going to conferences and telling people this. It's a fact. We know it. It's universal whether in captivity or in the wild, bonobos are clearly matriarchal. And male primatologists would stand up and say, what is wrong with the males in this community? Why are they not in charge? How do we explain this? Um, as though they were breaking some kind of natural rule. It is nothing to do with size. Bonobo males are, on average, slightly bigger than bonobo females. They don't rule. They're, it's not a male-dominated society because the bonobo females form very strong bonds with each other, unusually strong bonds, which means that it's impossible for a male to move up that hierarchy. Well, humans, we also form very strong bonds with other humans who aren't kin. We form strong communities. Um, and we're able to do that in so many different ways. So we have, you know, all the evidence, whether it's scientific or historical, points to the fact that this isn't a biological thing that has driven the way that we are now. This is a kind of socially driven thing. This is something we have invented. It's a political system that we've invented. And I'm not ruling out the possibility of any biological component here. Maybe there is one. But if that's all we have, 
How devastating is that? If really the only explanation we have for how things are is that it's just basically how we are deep down genetically and biologically, that's not good enough. And we have so many other ways of explaining why societies are the way they are. And that's what I was trying to do in this book, is just give you that other side of the story. I think, I can't remember if it was Franz Duval who said as well that male domination in the bonobos is mostly male on male. Yeah, but even among chimps, a lot yeah. of, most of the violence is that way. And yeah. you have female hierarchies among chimps. Yeah. So it's not just that the, all the males dominate the females. Mm-hmm. It's so there are different hierarchies and it tends to be the alpha male on the very top. But also a really good reminder um, that patriarchy is really bad for men too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, I think yeah. it's Kate Millett who said that patriarchy is the system where men dominate other men and then also that those groups dominate women you know there's Mm. a kind of um it's a almost a lazy kind of thinking that we all do with patriarchy where we think of it as being um men versus women when really it's you know these systems and these structures that we all live in and Mm. I think you know having a son I think all the time about how um you know patriarchy punishes men for conforming to it, and it punishes men for resisting it. Mm. And I think that with women, that's exactly the same. Like, we're yeah. all being harmed and hurt. Mm. Um, you take us to so many different parts of the world and different cultures and different time periods um, in the book to show us all of these patriarchies. But it also made me think of how there are also a lot of different feminisms and how in the, the West we think what we call feminism is really white feminism or liberal feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you illustrate that, you know, talking about, like, the, women, the women's suffrage movement in the, in the US and the um, impact of colonialism in India. And I was thinking, could you talk a little bit about that, that the, the struggle of women's rights is so complex and so local and so specific Mm. in each different context that Mm. just as patriarchy is not one monolith, you know, feminism can't be either. Yeah, and different systems of oppression borrow from each other and as individuals we select which system will give us the power and status in the moment that we need it. And we sometimes underestimate that. You know, often we like to think as feminists that women are always working in other women's interests. And of course that's not true because um, if we have as an individual some other way to gain power for ourselves using our class or using our race or something else or our wealth, whatever it is, we will reach for that because that's the natural thing to do. Women are also interested in power and status just like among other primates. We, we all care about these things. Um, so one of the um, places I visited when I was uh, writing The Patriarchs, I moved to the US uh, about two years ago um, in the middle of writing the book. And uh, in New York City, if you just go a little bit north for a few hours, you hit a little town called Seneca Falls. And this place is famous. It's very small. It's famous for being the site of the first ever women's rights convention in 1848. And the town is kind of a memorial to that. It's become a site of pilgrimage for women. 
um, you know, they come from all over the world. Although when I went in March, I noticed nobody else was there because it was freezing cold. It was absolutely the worst time to be visiting. But um, Susan B. Anthony, um, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, all these huge figures in the suffrage movement of the 19th century are celebrated here. And the story that was hidden away for a very long time was that, yes, this Women's Rights Convention happened in the middle of the 19th century. In 1590, so this is hundreds of years before the United States was even founded, Haudenosaunee women, otherwise known as the Iroquois, indigenous community, their women met in that exact same place to demand peace among their nations. And the reason they were able to do that was because Haudenosaunee women already had a lot of power and authority in their egalitarian communities. In fact, the egalitarianism of the Iroquois was so kind of important to those early settlers that when Obama came into power, he even ratified a motion saying that they inspired American democracy. We forget that. We think that the United States was founded purely on European principles. But what they encountered in the US among indigenous communities was seminal to the development of our understanding of what it means to be equal. Now, when women's rights activists encountered Haudenosaunee women, these are women who controlled agriculture in their communities. They're matrilineal, so all descent is recognized through mothers rather than fathers. Fathers are kind of secondary to their families. Um, clan mothers still run the local level of government. In every way, they had so much agency and authority. And these white middle-class Christian women who are fighting for the vote in America were fighting on the platform of, uh, we will be the most modern country in the world by offering equality to women. And yet here was a society that was already egalitarian, that already gave women far more rights and freedoms that even, than even they were asking for. And they couldn't square that. That was a really difficult thing for them to figure out because on the one hand they celebrated them as a reminder that we could live a different way. It really challenged their ideas of natural patriarchy. They used them as an example to people that um, patriarchy was not some divine rule. It wasn't some natural rule. But on the other hand, how could they make the claim that equality was modern as long as there was such an old society that clearly was already equal? And the way they did that and the way that other philosophers did that, including Friedrich Engels, who, who borrowed very heavily from ethnographic research on the Haudenosaunee, was to say, well, they're primitive. They belong to the past. And this is what happened to all matrilineal societies in the 19th century. As soon as European settlers encountered them, they just said, they're backwards, they belong to the past. What happens is uh, we were all matriarchal once, and then men wised up, and they took control of their families, and then we became patriarchal, as though patriarchy is a product of civilization. As soon as you become modern and civilized, then you inevitably have patriarchy. And the consequence of framing it that way, of ignoring the fact that the Haudenosaunee were also a modern society, they had just organized themselves differently, was that European settlers then decided, well, we'll civilize them into patriarchy. They took children away from their families and they taught the girls to be housewives and they taught the boys to do agricultural work. 
they wouldn't trade with the women anymore. They would only trade with the men. Um, they told mothers, you have to name your children after the fathers rather than after your mothers, which was incredibly difficult for the men and the women. Men and women railed against this. They tried to fight back against it. And they felt that, that you know, there's a literature that shows these men, indigenous men, complaining to white settlers, you treat your women as though they're property, as though all they're worth to you is a bit of land. We don't think about our women that way. And bit by bit, what this did, the work of missionaries, the work of settlers, was to introduce patriarchy to societies that hadn't had it before. So, you know, when we talk about the age of patriarchy, how old it is, the origins of it, and, you know, we have in our head that it is 5,000 years old or 7,000 years old, in some places, yeah, it is. But in North America and in other parts of the world, it is within living memory. You know, it was introduced in a time that people can still remember and they are still living with the consequences of that. And as you said, the, the parallels with um, the matriarchies in India that you described as well, you know, the, the patriarchal bargains that are then made by people, men and women, um, in the face of dispossession and invasion um, can then kind of weaken the resolve of the original groups to, mm. you know, maintain their traditions. You know, yeah. you told stories of, you know, um, some men grasping the opportunity to be kind of elevated out mm. of that, you know, it had not occurred to them until they were infected with the, you know... Like Ken going to the Much library. Much like Ken in the Barbie movie. Yeah, exactly. We were talking about Barbie backstage. And, um, it is like that. I said, this must have been one of the books that Ken found in the library. Um, and that he, um, he must have read it as the patriarchs, how men came to rule. Um, and, uh, yeah, so anyway, the idea of um, the, the, that kind of, like, virus of patriarchy, in yeah. a way, infecting people one by one, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they lost their solidarity because some women were wanting to bargain with the patriarchy, some men were wanting to say, oh, well, mm-hmm. I can get myself a better situation here. Yeah. And that, that, that is also part of the, um, you know, the abuse and terrorising of these communities that, as you say, for many hundreds and in some cases thousands of years had nurtured very different traditions. Absolutely. And it wasn't just about cultural change, which can be profound. You know, if you're told repeatedly by a dominating power, your ways are backwards. You know, if you want to be modern and you want to be civilised, then you have to live this way. You have to live in a nuclear family. You can't have multiple husbands. You can't you know, run your childcare this way. The father has to be the primary person in your household. That has an effect of chipping away at people. It starts to change minds. And what's interesting about Kerala, so Kerala in southern India um, uh, is home to the Nairas, which is this famous uh, royal family. So, you know, again, people sometimes think about matrilineal um, as only occurring among small tribal communities. But the Nairas were a big, powerful, very influential royal family um, which, whose influence was so great that from the second that records were kept around literacy in India, Kerala always had the rates of literacy in India for men and women, very high, above 90%, because it was just 
a given that girls would be very well educated, that they would, you know, they would have to take control of property, had very, um, so much freedom, sexual freedom and in every kind of way. But when the British arrived, bit by bit, of course, they fed them this idea that what they were doing was weird and strange, that the women had to cover up. You know, we have memoirs showing that women wouldn't, would be naked from the waist up because that was just how they dressed and, you know, there was no shame about it. Um, and the British introduced that shame and told them, no, this is inappropriate, you have to do it this way, you have to be married, m man and wife only, you know, nuclear families, these big, huge, extended, beautiful extended family households, the Taravads, in which they lived, in which the eldest female would be the matriarch of that household, by the 1990s was crumbling away, they were sold off, fell into disrepair. But what's interesting is that now, in the 21st century, um, you see Kerala kind of having gone through that period of being told, matrilineal is backwards, let's make it illegal, is now coming back in a world in which now the West is saying equality actually is modern. Oh, we were wrong about that, <laughs> we were sorry. Wrong yeah. about that. Um, so now Kerala, just recently, they introduced uh, gender-neutral uniforms in some of their schools, so kind of cropped, collot-type trousers for, for girls and boys. And everyone was really excited about it and happy about it. There was no kind of dissent. But the way they framed it was to say, this is a return to our traditions. This is, you know, who we are as a state. Which is interesting to me because it's a reminder that tradition is what you make it. Not all traditions are patriarchal. Tradition is as we create it and also as we reframe it as time goes on. Um, and a lot of my book is kind of arguing that we need to be less precious about our traditions and customs. As uncomfortable as that makes us, we have to be able to reimagine them because that is what the patriarchs do. They are constantly reimagining our traditions and our past for us. So as feminists, we also need to be able to do that. Yeah, which is, um, you know, very um, germane to my next question, which is about the, in the chapter that you wrote called Transformation, you talk about another a revolution in Iran, um, what's called the Islamic Revolution, um, and what that meant for women in terms of tradition and what tradition means and meant in that society it was a really devastating read, that chapter, to think of how much hope and how much, um, you know, just uh, just the, the energy that had um, coalesced around the revolution mm. then being, you know, just so swiftly and brutally um, cast aside or, you know, you know crushed. Mm. Um, and so can you talk about that a little bit in terms of the Soviet Union chapter is you know, similar in that it, the women in different societies are in these kinds of double binds where they are, they are up against white supremacy and Islamophobia and, you know, mm. capitalism or the West and other forms of oppression that are equally weighing on them. Mm. And, of course, that means that... Um, you know, as women of colour know much better than white women, that there's no turning your back on, you know, your brothers and the men yeah. that you love in, in your family because 
in some contexts, it's much more real. If there's bombs dropping on you, it's much more real who the enemy is. Mm -hmm. And so, I know I've sort of jumped all around over there, but um, I was just thinking about um, the idea of tradition and how that can be this double-edged sword that um, patriarchy in two very different forms Mm. were both able to, the patriarchs in Iran were both able to Weaponize. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I wrote this chapter before the current protest started in Iran, so before the death of Masa Amini, and it was very interesting then, having finished it, to see the protests happening and then recontextualize everything that everybody had told me. I interviewed a lot of Iranian women, and suddenly everything they had said looked completely different in the light of uh, what had happened because there was a lot of de- despondency at the point that I'd interviewed them. They felt hamstrung that the regime was not changing, nothing was shifting, that reform was happening so slowly and sometimes going backwards. We forget that in 1979, the revolution was not just led by the religious conservatives. It was a popular movement. Mm. Socialists were on the streets. Women's rights activists were out. Um, Everyone was there. Girls would leave their homes and live in communes with people during the revolution. It was a huge upswelling a belief that this would lead to a radically more equal society um, united against the Shah. The Shah was seen as a kind of puppet of the West. That was a problem that people had with him, this monarch who had this overarching control over the country and seemed to be selling it off to foreign powers. Um, And the fear was that Iranians were losing themselves, you know, that this country was being westernized and modernized. The Shah had banned the veil. Women weren't allowed to mm-hmm. wear it. Uh, if you went to Tehran that decade, in fact, Andy Warhol went and he came back and said, I saw women wearing makeup and miniskirts. You know, this, is, this was seen by the West as a success story, but within Iran, people felt they had lost their country. So in overthrowing the Shah, they felt let's in having this popular revolution, in getting rid of the monarchy, let's have a democracy of the kind that we want. The problem was, of course, that um, the Shah had been so successful at quashing any kind of political opposition that all that was left were the religious conservatives. He couldn't touch, to some extent, he couldn't touch religion because that was such an integral part of what Iran was. So they came into power, and as soon as Khomeini came into power, what did he do but say, well, we need to reclaim what we were. If we we have become too modern, then we have to reclaim what it means to be Iranian. Um, So during the revolution, what did you see? Women adopting the veil as a symbol of resistance to the Shah. It became a symbol of solidarity with poorer women in those regions of Iran where they were still wearing the veil, even though it had been banned, as a sign of saying, we are against that. This is what it means to be truly Iranian. And of course, the Islamic conservatives loved this. You know, they fostered it. And as soon as they came into power, they made it mandatory. And, you know, these socialists, uh, women's rights activists, so many people fled Iran. You know, this huge Iranian diaspora now living around the world who had to leave in exile. Many people were imprisoned. Many people were killed. And now, zoom forward to 2022, 2023, now taking off the veil is the symbol of resistance. So it's interesting how this one, you know, piece of clothing 
at one time, 40 years ago, was wearing it was a sign of resistance, and now 40 years later, taking it off is a symbol of resistance. This is how women's rights gets used by patriarchal powers. The Shah was a patriarch too. Mm -hmm. The Islamic Republic, their leaders, those conservative clerics are also patriarchs. They just exchange one patriarchy for another. Mm -hmm. And the question we're not asking now in the current protests is, if they were to go all the way, if they were to overthrow the current regime, what would replace it? Because the lesson of the last two centuries of revolution is that it won't necessarily be something better. As women in the Soviet Union discovered as yeah. well, that mm. um, you just talking about the veil, you reminded me of a part of the um, writing on the USSR and how people love to mention that Russia was the first, or the USSR was the first place where women, you know, could wide, it had widespread abortion rights. But they don't mention <laughs> that, you know, in the, the 1930s, Stalin revoked them. Yeah. Abortion was banned again. Mm -hmm. And then abortions reinstated later on. And it's this lever that is pushed and pulled, much like it is being done in the US now, yeah. pushed and pulled in order to control populations mm -hmm. I mean, literally in terms of we need more people, yeah. so we'll ban abortion, force mm -hmm. all these people to give birth, these women mm -hmm. to give birth. And just, just the, you know, you're describing that in this very clinical, academic way, and I just kept thinking of all the people, of all the women and men in Iran mm -hmm. who suddenly couldn't leave the house because yeah. you... You know, the women who couldn't leave the house when the veil was banned. Mm. And then the women who can only leave the house when the veil is made yeah. compulsory. Just how callous and how um, capricious it is almost. Mm. As you say, it's not cleverly planned. It's mm. very reactionary. Yeah. You know, patriarchal systems are not run by diabolical geniuses. No, not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, they're yeah, run absolutely. by... They're kind of like scrappy street it's fights. It's opportunistic, with, You anything. know, people fighting to find the yeah. knife in the mud kind of thing. Yeah. And it just... It felt... All the way through the book, I kept having these moments of just losing my breath and just thinking these things that, with a stroke of a pen, mm. are forcing women into births are forcing mm. women into exile. I mean, it's... And men. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's absolutely devastating yes. to see it all laid end-to-end -end as you do in the book. Yeah, and, it, and it's not... It doesn't happen that way because some kind of patriarchy is always inevitable at the end. It's because we forget that not everybody wants equality. Every single person has a different idea of what a perfect society looks like. Um, and equality means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. So those of us who want a feminist form of equality, who want freedom that, you know, really does abolish gender depression, we have to build that. You can't just assume it will happen once you have a revolution, that somehow all the pieces will fall in your favour just because we naturally... They, it will naturally happen that way. You have to build it. You need a leadership around it. You need to make the case for it and present it to people and win them over. And that is, you know, something that long-standing power structures have the advantage over because they've already been around for so long. They already know what they're doing. They've got literature around them. They've got the religion around them. And the benefit of incumbency. 
Yeah. You know, just the, the, like you say, the idea that all of us think of them. I grew up in Queensland, which you... <laughs> um, there'll be different, different levels of understanding of what that meant growing up in Queensland in the 80s and 90s. And Joe Bielke-Peterson had been the Premier since I was born and he was still the Premier when I b- became an adult um, because, you know, he was a corrupt <laughs> crony. But... This is the thing is that you start to think of things as just inevitable and just, you know, I just thought that he was just there forever. You know, you, you grow up with these, in these really distorted um, environments where things are absolutely not as they should be, but mm. if it's just been like that for long enough, we forget that it's only in our lifetime, you know, that before Jabuka Peterson there were, you know, communists elected to the Queensland Parliament. Like, there were... There's, there's more flux than we think and that's both comforting and inspiring but also sort of terrifying and demoralising. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm optimistic about it. I'd love, you know, as much as I would love revolutionary change, I think what I learnt in the process of the last few years is realising that reform for whatever reason, even though it's painfully slow, I mean, no one wants to have to wait for equality, but at least it carries everyone along. You know, people get there eventually. Everyone gets there, the men and the women, everybody. Um, And that's why reform has delivered so much over the last few centuries. I don't think we should underestimate the enormous progress we have made legally and politically in terms of repealing so many of the laws that treated women as property. You know, that is a huge difference in how we think about marriage and how we think about the rights of women. And I know there's so much more still to do, especially around cultural change and the way we organise families and the state and all of that. But, um, you know, revolutions have fed into that, but we have all been carried along with it. And we've, you know, it's a rare man now who I th- who would you know, dare to think that women shouldn't work or women shouldn't have the vote or women shouldn't have equal rights within, you know, to property or to her, keep her own earnings. But it was only a century ago that that was the case. <laughs> you said I'm from Queensland, so... <laughs> I know people who think that. Um, I... My dad. Um, I, um, Whose name is Alan, and I have always <laughs> right, and I have always called him as an adult. I always called him Alan in this sort of like, you know, my kind of tiny rebellion, not to his face, but um, <laughs> I would be like, oh, Alan was on the phone again, blah blah blah, you know. And now that I've seen Barbie, you know, Alan means something so different. Oh, yeah. I'm, Alan's a nature nice Nature is one. healing, you know. <laughs> um, Alan's gone from the villain to hero in one art. <laughs> Angela, I wanted to ask you to read just a tiny excerpt um, mm-hmm. to finish mm-hmm. this up tonight um, of, from, from There Are mm-hmm. um, through to where I've defaced your book with more <laughs> writing um, because I, I just felt like to hear in your words this passage would be um, hopefully to the rest of, of you um, as it was for me, um, very um, comforting and uh, and empowering and made and enabling and made me feel less hopeless. So I thought we could end with that. 
Um, okay, so there are pushes for power and there are those pushing against. At time giving rise to more restrictive and authoritarian societies, at other times less. What we call patriarchy can be thought of as, set, as a set of factors in that ongoing conflict. It's about people looking to assert dominance over others through their own appeals to nature, history, tradition, and the divine. Their claims are invented, adjusted, embellished, and reinvented all the time, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing. But the fight for a fairer and more equal society is constantly repositioning itself too. It doesn't stand still either. <laughs> Thank you. I'm cry. Um, we do have some time for questions from the floor. Uh, there's someone at the back. Um, if everyone could um, try to ask a question, you know, with a question mark at the end, <laughs> that can be answered, would be great. So um, not a question designed as a speech or something like that. <laughs> okay, look, I just want to say thank you very much. This has been a great night and I really appreciated the book. Fantastic read. Um, you know, in the book you talk about um, patriarchy almost marching through medieval continents on horseback and sort of spreading different ways of being. Do you see social media and the internet as the modern day march of patriarchy? Oh, that's a really good question. I've actually never been asked that before. Um, I actually left Twitter. I mean, Karen <laughs> left way before I did. She's a really early adopter and a late and an early quitter as well. But I left in 2020 um, because I was just getting so much abuse on there. Um, I just couldn't handle it anymore. Um, and you're right, what we're seeing right now, and worryingly among young boys, is this kind of drift towards the Andrew Tates and the Jordan Petersons who are presenting this image of masculinity that for some reason is appealing to them. And I do think that is a challenge to feminists because we have done a really good job of making the case for equality to women and girls. Um, and I think the Matildas are a really good example of this. You know, they are... They are, you know, and I'm not a big football fan, but what they show is that those arbitrary barriers, those, distinct, those distinctions we have made between what men can do and what women can do shouldn't exist anymore. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. I just wish when I was at school that the girls were allowed to play football. We could only do netball and hockey. Um, and that's not going to be the case anymore. They allow us to question everything. Um, so we've made this beautiful case for women and girls, and we haven't really done the same for boys and men. What we've said is that we're going to have equality now. You just get ready and prepare for it. What we really should be saying is gender equality is good for you too. Like as Karen was saying, this is a system that really only ultimately benefits those elite men at the top, the patriarchs at the very top. Throughout history, men have been disadvantaged by a system that um, disproportionately gives those men at the top more women, more wives, more wealth, that expects the younger men to go out and fight. Russia is a very good example of this. Russia is, and Putin is a symbol for you know, the misogynists and sexists all over the world of the great patriarchal leader. In Russia, just recently, they released an advertising campaign because they don't have enough men in the army. They're losing men so quickly in the army. 
uh, telling young men who are trying to flee the country because they don't want to be conscripted, be a man and enlist, um, which is an appeal to this masculine notion of what it means to be a man. You know, if you want to be a man, you have to fight and be a warrior because that is what the patriarchal state demands of you. And at the same time, that Russian state just last year introduced, um, for women who have more than 10 children, they will be given by the state an honor known as the Mother Heroine Medal. You know, that if you are that kind, you know, that really productive, reproductive mother, again, serving the patriarchal state, that we will reward you. How is that good for anyone? Those boys do not want to be fighting those wars. Most women do not want to be having 10 kids. I'm sure there are exceptions, but I certainly don't want to be having 10 kids. Um, but that's what we have to remind boys and men, that this system is not working for you either. You can have much more freedom and agency to live as you want if you sign up to feminism, if you, you know, commit yourself to gender equality and not, you know, be bought by this myth that people like Tate and Peterson are selling, that if you lean into patriarchy, that will somehow reward you. It re rewards very few people. Um, and we have to make the case for everyone. You know, it's not just about half of us, it's for all of us, really. Are there any more questions? Uh, yeah. yeah. Hello, uh, my name's Julian, and I've loved the talk tonight. I was wondering if uh, you covered the book of Genesis in this uh, book, in terms of would that be, would you consider that the original sin, so to say, of Western patriarchy? Um, because it paints women as being responsible for the downfall of yeah. man. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people often ask me about religion. What part does religion play in the development of the origins of patriarchy? What we have to remember is that um, these modern, major, monotheistic religions um, are predated by gender depression. So gender depression, and we didn't get to, get to this, but if you're wondering how did patriarchy first emerge... <laughs> Um, I didn't want to spoil it for people who are going to buy the book tonight and have Angela <laughs> sign it for them. I'll, I'll give you a spoiler now. So it, it didn't emerge with agriculture. Uh, we have agriculture for thousands of years before we have any signs in the historical record of gender depression. It certainly wasn't there before that. Um, what we see is with the rise of the state, so in regions like ancient Mesopotamia, so this is in the Fertile Crescent like between 5,000 and 7,000 years ago, you see in those early states the elites in power, men and women, they would have been at the beginning, were desperately concerned with population. How do we keep populations here, people here, producing a surplus for us at the very top and also so loyal to us that they will die to defend us if necessary, defend the borders of the state and increase territory? And that is the fundamental basis of the patriarchal state. Because what happens is over thousands of years, those elites necessarily have to take an interest in what happens in the family. The family is the unit of population production. You know, this is where people come from. So over time, you get a pressure on young women to have as many babies as possible, which left to our own devices, we would not have as many babies as women end up having in patriarchal states. Um, and young men are expected, because they're not able to have those babies, 
to fight and defend the state. So there have always been women warriors, women military leaders all over the world. But that basic distinction, that gender division of labor in a very binary way, creates what we now think of as these gendered stereotypes, that women are nurturing and motherly and their place is in the home, and the man's place is as a warrior to be strong and stoic and brave, and his place is in the public sphere. That set the stage for the patriarchal state, and it's still a concern now, as you know, the example of Russia shows you that here is a patriarchal state still concerned about men not fighting and women not having enough babies. Now, later, when you get the development of um, the big major religions, we forget that Christianity, when it first came along as one of many religious cults in antiquity, and religions in antiquity actually offered a huge amount of freedom to many women because they were a space in which women could behave differently from how they normally would. Mm. Um, you have priestesses, you have women exercising a lot of power. And Christianity at that time in ancient Rome uh, was one of these. It offered something revolutionary. It told people that they were all equal, which was unthinkable at the time. Because essentially, I'm not a religious person. I'm not trying to sell you Christianity. But what I'm trying to say is that here, the reason that people flocked to it was because in a very hierarchical, slave-owning society people were told that they were all equal, men and women, everyone. And so, you know, it became as powerful as it did. What happens over time is the establishment of religion, the institutions, the religious leaders become invested in the aims of the state for understandable reasons. The state needs religion and the religions, religious establishment needs a state. They need each other for wealth and power. And so we end up with religious institutions now that are obsessed with the family, that are continually concerned about the fact that the nuclear family is breaking down, that people aren't having enough children. The Pope just recently was complaining that in Italy people were having dogs instead of having kids and that they should have more children. Why does he care about that? Why is that such a concern? The number one concern for the Pope is people having kids is because that was the original concern of the patriarchal state. So what we think of now as these very deeply patriarchal religions didn't start out that way. They became that over time. The text came to reflect that over time. And the way that they were interpreted came to reflect that over time. Um, they were working in service of something even them. And I think the same, the same thing happened with Islam and Judaism and, you know, the, mm. the infrastructure that grows up around it is very, very yeah. far from yeah. the original teachings. And it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, again, I'm not a religious person, but, for example, in the 19th century, when um, American women's rights activists were pushing for equal rights, they very quickly realized that in a country as religious as the United States, and you cannot underestimate how religious that country is. I, you know, like I said, I moved there a couple of years ago. People talk about God all the time. Politicians <laughs> talk about God constantly. And it's very strange for me coming from Britain where that's generally not done. Um, and so these 19th century activists realized, okay, how do we make the case for equal rights for women when our own religion 
seems to mandate the subordination of women, what they did was rewrite the Bible. They wrote the women's Bible, which reinterpreted everything in a way that was compatible with women's rights. Um, and Islamic feminists did the same. You know, women like Fatima Manisi, the great Moroccan sociologist, reinterpreted the text and did it so well that she was highly respected by Islamic scholars because it's possible to do that. We can all do that. And as much as, you know, in the Soviet Union they tried to abolish religion as a way of combating this problem, if we really want to carry people along, sometimes we have to accept that that is the kind of change sometimes that can carry people along more easily. You know, I would, personally, I would love it if we didn't need, you know, <laughs> patriarchal religions at all, but if we live in a world in which they matter to people, in which they form identity, in which they're a big part of who we are, then how can we reframe them in a way that works with the kind of society that we want to create? A very good argument for organising at every level. <laughs> Um, I think that that is all of our time and I wanted to uh, thank the Victorian Women's Trust in particular for presenting or co-presenting this event and bringing Angela out here. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you to the Wheeler Centre for hosting this event, to all the crew as well as the pro producers uh, and to the audience for being an engaged and lively bunch. Uh, I want to um, ask you now to join me in thanking Angela for being with us. You've been listening to Karen Pickering in conversation with Angela Saini, recorded on Tuesday the 15th of August 2023 at the Wheeler Centre, presented in partnership with the Victorian Women's Trust. The bookseller for this event was Readings. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.